when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and most of you know the story, um, the devil came to him and he tempted him with this proposition that he was, um, he, he tempted him with the proposition to turn this stone into bread and to satisfy his desires for hunger. And most of you will remember how Jesus parried that particular temptation. He said these words, he said, um, man shall not live by bread alone, but, but by what? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. By every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now, I want to confess to you that earlier in my Christian life, I thought that those words were more fiction than real. I mean, how is it that the word of God, every word which proceeds from the mouth of God, could be just as important or more important than the bread and the food that I take in so that I can live the daily life? As I, I, I thought of it as a bit of an overstatement or a theoretical statement that isn't really true, but the farther I have traveled in my journey towards the destiny which God has called me, the more I realize that it's more than true. And I don't say that um, because it's theologically correct. I say that because it's become a reality in my life, that I would not be able to exist in my faith or grow in my faith or um, be strengthened in hope unless I had the Word of God. That is, it's one of the only things, if I was to be perfectly frank, that can actually lift my soul out of the smog of this life to, to, to see the hope of who God is and to be reminded of why I'm here and to find my soul strengthened and, and, and encouraged. It's one of the only things that when my mind dwells on it, it actually lifts me out of the clouds and, and lets me see things the way they are and it encourages me um, to go another day and to be stronger in my hope for the Lord. That is, it has become, in actuality, a very real addiction for me, a, a holy one, that is, that I need this. And that's not a statement of strength. That is an acknowledgement of my weakness. That apart from just taking this in as often as I can, I, I, I wouldn't make it. Um, I know that. That doesn't mean I'm as consistent or as faithful in it as I like to be, but it's something that I have grown to recognize I need in my life every day. And so what I do in my practice and my own devotional life is I, I endeavor to memorize a, a, a longer passage of Scripture, and after I, I start thinking on it, and, um, and I find that it just is like fire in my heart, and it ignites new hope and, and, and encourages me in difficult times. And one of the passages that I have been dwelling on over the course of the last couple of months is uh, Psalm chapter 145. Don't turn there, because I, I, I just want to, this is a way of introducing what we're going to talk about tonight. Psalm 145, a psalm that was written by David. And it has been so helpful for me morning and evening to go through it and just to have my soul lifted up. Um, I am gripped by the fact that in the opening lines of the psalm that David almost um, explodes in praise to God as if he is compelled. It's not something that he has to think about or something he has to generate. He just kind of explodes with a spontaneous sense of praise to the Lord. He opens up Psalm 145 by saying, I will exalt you my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. And you read those lines and you think, what compelled you to say such things as I will exalt you and I will praise you and I will extol your name forever and ever and ever every day? His psalm answers my question because the Lord is great and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Why is it that David exalts and praises and extols the name of the Lord forever and ever? Because the Lord is gracious and compassionate. 
He is slow to anger and rich in love. He is good to all. He has compassion on all He has made. Why exalt and praise and extol the name of the Lord forever and ever? Because, David says, your kingdom endures through all generations. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Why exalt, praise, and extol the name of the Lord forever and ever? Because the Lord is is good to all His promises. He keeps all His promises and He is loving toward all He has made. Why exalt and praise and extol the name of the Lord forever and ever? Because He is near to those who call upon Him. To those who call upon Him in truth. Why exalt and praise and extol the name of the Lord forever and ever? Because the Lord is righteous in all His ways and loving in all He does. Why exalt and praise and extol the name forever and ever? Because David says, the Lord opens His hands and satisfies the desires of every living thing. That's why He says, I will praise you forever and ever. I will praise your name forever and ever. I will extol you forever and ever. Because He was compelled to. He had this urgent passion to release what was inside called forth by the greatness of God. And that's what praise is. When you stand on the plains and you see the Grand Tetons merging over the, over the plains, you don't have to think, wow, that's beautiful. You just stand there and go, wow. It's the greatness of God's faithfulness, His compassion, His love. The greatness that no one can fathom. The fact that God opens His hands and satisfies the desires of every living thing that calls forth in David this kind of compulsive praise. And it has been my aim, it has been our aim in the last, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten weeks as we've looked at, at the wonders of who God is, that that would take place at some level and degree in your soul. That is, as we pull back the veil and as we see more and more of who God is and all of His glorious attributes, like the fact that He doesn't change, the fact that He is sovereign, the fact that He is loving and He is just, He is invisible and yet He makes Himself visible, that you would come to be captivated by the same God that David was captivated by and praised and lived for and suffered for. That has been our desire. And tonight we come yet to one of those other glorious attributes of God that I think should create a sense of spontaneous praise in our hearts. A sense of, wow, like the grand Tetons of the glory of God are just emerging before me and I can see why I should praise. And this particular attribute of perfection um, we might call God's satisfied independence or His self-sufficient fullness. To say that something is, is self-sufficient means it doesn't need anything else. It, it doesn't require any help, any assistance. That's what it means to be self-sufficient. And the God that emerges in Scripture, the picture of God that emerges in Scripture is that God is entirely and fully self-sufficient. That is that He needs nothing. He doesn't need assistance. He doesn't need help. He has no deficiencies whatsoever. He never has to eat to maintain strength, never has to drink, never has to sleep to recharge his batteries. He is infinitely self-satisfied. He is the one who is really ultimately content in and of himself with nothing else. It is one of his perfections that Paul brings out in this particular text of Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 28, that I think is an amazing text, and I hope you will think so by the end of the evening if you don't know it already. These verses, 26 through 28, comprise the very first part of a speech that Paul in the first century delivered in the ancient city of Athens, Greece. 
a city that was renowned for its wisdom and philosophy, the city where Socrates was condemned. It's a city that was known for its religious fervor, and it was a city whose temples were famous. And here in the midst of this Athenian context where paganism, temples, and and idols were, we find Paul making this statement in the speech to these Athenians. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything because He Himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and He determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets or poets have said, we are His offspring. The essence of what Paul says in the first part of this address is to exalt the fact that God, God is fully and completely self-sufficient and in need of nothing. He does that by talking in the negative and in the positive. In the negative, he, he makes two statements of things that God is not, things that God does not do. The first statement has to do with His dwelling. He says, in verse 24, He says that God, who made the heavens and the earth and so forth, does not live in temples built with hands. In other words, men cannot build a home for God. Paul is passionately asserting amidst a sea of temples around him, temples to Zeus and to Athena and also to Poseidon, a myriad of temples. He is asserting that God does not live in temples. Men cannot create a home for God. Moreover, he goes on to say that God is not served by human hands. And he's saying this in the context of temples which would be hustling, bustling with priests and people coming and offering different types of things to their different deities and different gods. Here he's saying, and he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. And it's interesting, the particular word here translated served when it says, and he is not served by human hands, is not the normal word that would be translated served comes from the Greek word therapeuo, and the only reason I tell you that is because you can probably figure out what human words are derived from it. Therapeuo, therapy. As we give therapy to people who need help, um, that, that, that's where it comes from. It's, he's saying, God is not served in a way that somehow he, we think that He needs our help or assistance as if God needs some medication or He needs therapy. Normally it's translated healed. This is a pretty, um, what shall I say, revolutionary message, not to mention daring and courageous, in light of the sea of temples and idols in Athens when Paul spoke this. He's in essence saying, listen, God doesn't live in those pillars in the marble. And He doesn't need your people to come and offer sacrifices. I mean, that is... Pretty bold in light of the fact that some of the ancients and the pagan religions believed that gods needed help. They needed help to fight their wars. They needed stuff offered to them in their altars. They needed temple prostitutes to do their bidding. I mean, for Paul to say, listen, God is so far beyond that temple, you have no idea. And you don't have to serve Him because He is completely self-sufficient. 
God is self-sufficient in His love, in His wisdom, in His power. He doesn't need anything. God doesn't need my obedience. He doesn't need my money. He doesn't need my oxes or my oxen or my cows or my goats or my sheep. He doesn't even need me. He doesn't need my thoughts. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need humans to be full. He doesn't need angels. He doesn't need creation. He doesn't need heaven itself. He is entirely and completely sufficient in Himself. He's happy to be with Himself. With no need, no weakness, and no deficiency. And you notice Paul, of course, is talking in the context of worship, of temples and serving. And I believe that truth, the fact that God is completely and fully self-sufficient in Himself, requiring nothing, that that is a truth that has tremendous implications for how we should and how we shouldn't approach the Lord in the confines of our worship. On a number of different levels. I mean, it confronts some of the strains, some popular strains in Christian circles that would, I think, inadvertently cast or picture God as somehow desperate or needy for our help. I know that there are certain people who would answer the question, and perhaps some are here today. If you were to go out on the street, let me back up and say, if you were to go out on the street and talk to uh, a number of Christians, let's say 10, and you were to ask them the question, why is it that God created us? You probably get 6 out of 10 that would respond some way like this, that God created us because He wanted fellowship or because He needed fellowship. Now, I understand the well-meaning intent behind that. But let's ask the question, does God really need my fellowship as if He's in this kind of eternal lonely state? Needs someone to keep Him company? Someone to vent His frustrations on because things aren't going the way they should? Does God really need my fellowship? I think the answer would have to be, heck no! He's not served in any way or attitude by any way by me. By me living or being created. He is full in and of Himself, completely independent and satisfied in His independence. Now to be sure, God did create me for fellowship. He created you for fellowship, but not because He needed it, but because He wanted to bless us with the blessing of being able to enjoy His fullness and His contentment. He's full. He is independent. And He offers us the blessing of being able to share in His contentment in who He is. God never was, never will be lonely. He has experienced overflowing fellowship in the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Never needed another voice to hear. Never needed to have an ear to hear His voice. doesn't need my fellowship. And the same could be said for giving. Giving. Have you ever heard the statement, and then again, it's a well-meaning statement, I understand the heart behind it, but that... Uh, when you come to corporate worship, you come to give, not to get. I've heard that before. And to be honest and to be truthful, there is a sense in which we come into worship to give. No question. But we don't come to give because God needs us to give. God does not need your money. He does not need your talent. He doesn't any, need anything you have to give. And truth be told... My fundamental motivation and the fundamental motivation of everyone who comes to worship should not be first and foremost to give, but to get and to receive. Because we have nothing to give unless we first get, do we? 
We come empty. We come hungry. We come thirsty. We come needy. We come without anything to offer the Lord. I come because I need grace to live. I come because I need His encouragement to continue to walk forward. I come because I need His Word to lift up my mind into the, into the sunlight of His glory. I come because I am desperate in need of Him. That's, I come to get. And only as I get can I then in any real sense give. We can only give out of first getting what God has to offer to us. God doesn't need me to give anything. He first requires that I receive from Him and only in receiving then to give. You see, there's a way that, of giving to the Lord that I think is, um, how should we say it? Uh, well, dishonoring to Him and offensive to Him. It's when we feel like, Lord, I, I know You need this $25 more than I do. It's giving with a sense of pity. Can you imagine a homeless per- person walking up to Bill Gates in Spok- uh, not Spokane, but in Seattle? looking at his 25 cents and walking up to Bill Gates and saying, man, I, you need this more than I do. If Bill Gates is like most men that I know, how do you think he'd respond? <laughs> Excuse me? I need your 25 cents? You keep your 25 cents for yourself because I'm fully taken care of. That's giving with a sense of pity. And that's not how we give to the Lord, ever. Because that presupposes that he needs it, and he doesn't need it. He doesn't need anything. He is not served with human hands. Rather, the kind of giving he looks for that honors him is the, gifting, is the giving that comes from an obligation-free love. What I mean by that is, well, illustration might help here, is that uh, several years ago, uh, my wife and I decided to take my mom and dad on a cruise. It wasn't an expensive cruise, and it wasn't a long cruise, like a four or five day out of uh, San Pedro. And... Um, my dad's more well-off than I am. I didn't do it because he couldn't afford it at all. If I would have said, Dad, I know you're in hard times. Here, take this cruise. That would have been giving out of pity. But we talked about it. We had some extra money. And I was just compelled. We were compelled just because of the goodness of who they are and how they've been in our lives over the years. I can never repay them for what they've done for me. It was a simple offering of love. It's just to say, hey, I know how much you've given, and and this is just an expression of love. That's the offering, and that's the kind of giving that honors the Lord to say, listen, you've given me everything. I can't believe how much you love me. This is an expression of love, not pity. That's the only kind of giving we can actually do to the Lord that actually delights Him. Not when we give to Him thinking He needs it, but when we give to Him knowing that He has been so much more giving and loving towards us. And it can never be repaid. It's simply a way of saying, I love you, like we do to one another sometimes. So it's true of our worship, true of our giving. Of course, it's true of our serving. When we serve God in a way that that says to Him, I, I'm doing you a favor, then again, He's dishonored. The Lord is dishonored. The Lord does not need to put up recruiting posters like Uncle Sam needs you. He's not short-staffed. At one point, Jesus says, as he's walking, he says, listen, if you don't praise, God will make rocks rise up and cry out. He does not need you. He doesn't need your service. And yet, oftentimes, again, when we think of serving the Lord, we think that somehow we are assisting him. I remember reading a a letter board one time out in front of a church. Again, well-meaning. 
but inadvertently casts God as a desperate individual when it said that if you're not a Christian, you need God. And if you are a Christian, God needs you. And this is just my opinion, but I don't think God should ever be the subject of the verb need unless it's followed by nothing. God needs nothing. He can be the object of need, the verb need, any time. I need God. We need God. We need grace. We need love. We need Christ. But God needs nothing. And any time God's people have approached Him in a way that expresses that somehow God is deficient or in need, we find that God is, well, dishonored. At one point in Old Testament history, the people of Israel thought that the Lord needed their bulls and goats, you know, at the temple. And the Lord responds to them with this rebuke. He says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. So why would I need your bull or your goat? I own it all anyway, so stop thinking you're doing me a favor by bringing me a bull when I own everything anyway. He goes on to say, I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. If God was hungry, He wouldn't tell you. Why? Because the world is mine and everything in it. I own everything and you cannot feed me. So don't come to me as if somehow you're going to do me a favor. That's the first part, if you will. The negative part of what Paul says kind of hangs on those two statements that God does not dwell in temples built by humans. That God is not served by human hands as though He needs something. He is completely, completely and fully self-sufficient, independent of any need, perfectly satisfied and content in who He is without anything else. But then, on the positive side, as Paul puts it here in this text of Acts chapter twenty or chapter seventeen, twenty-four through twenty-eight, he flips it around and shows us not only is God completely and fully self-sufficient, but He overflows and, in fact, becomes the supplier and the servant of the needs of His people. He, in essence, flips the whole idea of who God is and what He does on its head. Read back through me the same with me the same text twenty four through twenty six this time looking at the positive statements of who God is, what he does, and why in the end he can't dwell a human temple made with hands or can't be served by human hands as though he needs anything verse twenty four i'm going to emphasize it with my voice. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them in the exact places where they should live. He grounds his whole argument in the fact that God is completely and fully self-sufficient in the fact that God is the creator of the world and everything in it. That He is creator. And because He is creator, He is sovereign. Which is why he says He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is creator and therefore He is sovereign. And as the sovereign creator, He is the capital G giver of everything. That's why he says gives to men life, breath, and everything else. 
So much so that in verse 26 we find that God is the one who builds a home for men to dwell, not men for God to dwell. There is this reversal between verses 24 and 26 that I think is rather striking. In verse 24, Paul tells us that the God who created all things as Lord of the heaven and earth does not live in temples men create. And then in verse 26, he switches it around and tells us, in fact, it is God who makes out of one the nation, every nation of men, and sets them to inhabit or dwell the whole earth, indwell the whole earth. And he sets the times and he sets the seasons and the boundaries in which they will live. So in 24, Paul's saying, no one can create a place for God to live, but God, in fact, as the creator and sovereign and giver, is the one who creates for us a place to live. It's not we who create a home for Him. It's Him who creates a home for us, and not just for us, but for the nations, determines their times and their boundaries. God created the earth as our home, and not just as a home, but then He lavishly furnished it, giving to us life, breath, and everything else, Paul says. He gives us fruit trees and gives us the fruit of the womb and gives us children and gives us food and gives us gravity to keep our feet on the ground, to air, to breathe. He fashioned lungs with which we breathe and also we sing. He is the author of everything. He has given us a home, created us a home and filled it and furnished it and gives us life to be in it. We can't create a home for God. God creates a home for us as the capital G giver. The creator, the sovereign, the giver of all things and the creator of the home for us. It's not we who serve God as if He needed anything. It's God in the end who supplies and serves us because we need everything. And that's one of the things that I think sets apart the God of the Bible, the God revealed in Jesus Christ, from every other God imagined on the face, in the face of human history. The God who is the sovereign, who becomes the supplier and the servant of His people, not the one who sits on the throne and waits for His people to serve on His every need, pretty remarkable that why Jesus when he came or God when he came in human flesh came and said I didn't come to be served I don't need you serving me but I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many it's a pretty remarkable vision of God set forth in the scripture revealed in Jesus and in the end, the only service we offer to God is because He first and continues to serve us. Because we have nothing in and of ourselves to offer. The God who would supply and serve the needs of His people. Not only the daily rations of food and water, and all of us are here tonight because the Lord has served us. Right now you're breathing because the Lord, Lord serves you. He gives you life, breath, and you're going to go home tonight. And Ron, you woke up on, on that operating table or in the hospital because God was serving him at that moment. And ultimately, God served us in the deepest way possible, atoning for sin, forgiving, giving life. That's the God of the Bible. He is not, does not inhabit temples we make. He does not serve by our hands as though he needs anything. It's opposite the god who is self-sufficient in and of himself overflows as the supplier and the servant of his people and i think that should have a profound effect on on how we think about him and, and perhaps more importantly 
our attitudes and our heart towards Him. It should create within us the fact that God is completely and fully self-sufficient and independent, not needing anything, not my help, not my praise. He doesn't have this ego that needs to be affirmed by my saying, you're great. He doesn't need it. At the same time that He overflows and becomes the supplier of our needs, building us a home, and one day taking us to a new heavens and new earth, a new home, it should create within us a sense of, of humble dependence, of acknowledging that everything that I am and everything that I do ultimately is dependent upon Him. The idea that we can ever be truly independent is a myth of pride. And the only way truly to approach God in a way that honors his, Him is to come empty and recognize the only service I can offer you is an empty-handed service. You have to first give to me so that then I can give back, not because I have to, but because I want to and because I love you. Yet it feels so good to be independent, doesn't it? That's something in the heart of fallen man to want to be independent. Do you remember how you felt the first time that you walked out from mom and dad's door? To live on your own felt pretty good didn't it or maybe it didn't i don't know in my case 17 years old i walked out had a sense of independence in my avenue of course was uncle sam and i remember getting my first paycheck i think it was 450 bucks which was to me a huge amount of money i thought i got my own money now <laughs> mom and dad didn't give it to me i remember i had my own meals and i had my own place to stay um I had medical insurance because Uncle Sam pays for your medical and your dental. And I had a ride. I had transportation. I had this sweet Chevy full-size truck, black. It's called a Custom Deluxe. Straight six with three on the tree, underpowered, overgeared, gutless wonder, with zebra skin seats and fuzzy dice hanging from my rearview mirror. And I thought I was the bomb and I had arrived because I was somehow independent from my parents. And how good did it feel to know that they did not need me to be a dependent upon them anymore? And if I would have spent any time reflecting, I would have realized that I was every bit as dependent after I left mom and dad than when I was with mom and dad. The only difference is what I depended upon was different. Now it was Uncle Sam that was paying for my medical. It was Uncle Sam that was paying for my dental. It was Uncle Sam that was giving me a barracks to live in. Uncle Sam that was paying... For me to live i was every bit as dependent as i was with my parents just different and that's not by the way to say that kids shouldn't grow up and move out of the house it's simply to acknowledge we never get to a state where we're ever independent from the lord we're always dependent every one of you is dependent upon a job a st the stability of your job to make money which depends on the stability of your company which depends on the stability of an economic system even if you're retired, that the retirement has certain dependencies upon which it exists and continues to make money or loses money. And if it's not there, it falls apart. A banking industry and a stable economy. And if it's not there, well, that can be gone too. It's all dependent. Even Safeway and Costco and Raley's and, and Winco, where we go to get food, we depend upon them putting food on the shelf that we can buy. And they depend on their suppliers. Their suppliers depend on farmers, you know, and the farmers depend on rain and sunshine. In the end, everything, it might be layered, but everything is dependent, and at the bottom of it, God is underneath it all. Day by day, season by season, faithfully providing rain and providing sunshine. There is no true independence. The only one who is truly independent is the Lord, needing nothing. 
We, however, are completely dependent in every way. Even those who want to live off the grid, you know, put your own generator, runs off biodiesel, and get your solar cells so you can get off of the grid with PG&E. You can get your own well. You don't have to pay for Fairfield water. In the end, you're still dependent. No matter where you go, you're still dependent. Someday when you're 80 and you need somebody to help you up the stairs, you will still be dependent. Independence is a myth of pride. One of the reasons that humanity fell. God created us to be like Him, but in Genesis 3, we decided we'd choose our own way to be like Him apart from Him, declaring our independence, which is the essence of what's... As much as we may have independence from one another, there is complete and absolute dependence upon God. And one of the ways He calls us to come to Him is acknowledging humbly, Lord, I am so completely dependent upon You for everything. Everything. And the Lord promises for those who humble themselves and trust in Him, not only for the daily provisions, but more importantly, for the eternal uh, provisions of the cross, that He gives grace to the humble. That's what it means to be a spiritual person in the Scriptures, to recognize one's humble and complete dependence upon the God who is completely self-sufficient but overflows as the provider, as the supplier, and as the servant of our needs, not us. His needs. But I think it should also create in us, especially in this season and hopefully every day of life, a sense of worship and gratitude. You know, with David, who could say the Lord is gracious and the Lord is compassionate, slow to anger, rich and abounding in love, faithful to all His promises, good to all that He has made, who opens His hands and satisfies the desires of every living thing to realize that everything you are right now and have, the house you live in, food you eat, is all because an independent God who is rich in love and grace supplies and provides and serves the needs of those who trust Him. What a spirit to enter into the Thanksgiving week to recognize that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. He's not served by us. It's precisely the opposite. He has built for us a home He continues to serve our daily needs, not as an inferior, but as a superior who is great in love and grace to provide for us and should create within us a sense of thanksgiving and gratitude for all that He is and all that He has done. Lord, I pray that You would make that true in our lives, not just in our thinking, but in our hearts. Even in these moments that we have, just a pause. Pause and think about everything that we have, everything that... We do. From the breath to the heart to the very thought that's going through my mind right now to the eternal provision of Christ and and salvation. May you help us to be aware that we are completely dependent upon you and it is you who are the giver and you the great servant of the Bible who serves the needs of your people because you're rich in love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.